Good morning, Saints of Our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for You Anytime, Anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. And today is Monday, September the 13th, and this next hour we begin a new study, Leviticus. I did some research on this on this book, and the last time we studied this on KFUO was 10 years ago on the predecessor of this study, the Bible study. And there's a reason for this. It's long, it can be complicated, graphic at times, which leads people to ask the question, why would we study this weird book? And that is the exact question that we will answer today as we begin to look at the main themes, which obviously, as we've talked about with the Old Testament, we put on our Christ goggles. And I am so excited as we find more out today. For the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's word, we welcome back with us Dr. John Kleinick, Professor Emeritus of Religion at Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia. And also, for our purposes today, we are deeply honored because he is the author of the Concordia Commentary on Leviticus. Dr. Kleinick, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, Bridie. Dr. Kleinig, it is once again a joy to have you with us, an honor as you come to us from Australia. And since this is our second time together, and I'll say this, we were so blessed to be able to go through all of Hebrews with you starting us off on the right foot. And now it's it's fun to be able to go back because now we, we in essence see the story and now we go back to unveil it even more. But before we get there, how are you, your family, and uh, your local congregation in Australia? Uh, we are well, thank you, but we are sick of the restrictions from COVID. Um, compared to the rest of the world, we've done well, but that hasn't stopped people's anxiety and panic and the restrictions. But uh, I'm well, we're well. Uh, our congregation has done remarkably well. Um, generally speaking, the church is struggling and, uh, to adapt to the new circumstances. Well, and, and this is a reminder always to our listeners that we join together to pray um, for those who come into our program and to the church that they serve. So a reminder to you, our listeners, to pray for the churches in Australia. It's kind of, it literally is across the world and it gets forgotten. So I encourage our listeners to pray um, for the churches in Australia as they proclaim God's word. But Dr. Kleinig, can you begin our time as we search the scriptures uh, to begin us in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you that all holiness comes from you. We thank you that you share your holiness with us through your Son, Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection and ascension, and through his most holy word and Holy Spirit. We pray that you will pour out your Spirit on us today, um, so that we may hear what you have to say to us, uh, share in your holiness, and be equipped to lead holy lives in service of you. In the name of Jesus, the Holy One of God. Amen. Amen. As we look at today's text, it is we're doing something a little bit different. Instead of us actually trying to read part of chapter 1 or do the whole chapter, I have asked Dr. Kleinig to give us all the tools that we need to study this book with the right interpretive goggles, because it can be overwhelming, Leviticus. This is part of the reason why, when I was in seminary, one of my professors said, you can do a study on Leviticus, but nobody will come. And so my challenge to you, our listeners, we want to start off on the right foot so that we not only We'll start the study, but we'll finish the study in the right way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeing what the real purpose is and how that affects us today and points us to Christ as well. Tomorrow, we will begin our study on chapter one with Pastor John Lekomsky. And so today, we just get the broad overview, but have your Bibles open because we'll be going through the book in thematic ways. So open up your Bibles. Reminder, when we do read the Bible, look at the Bible, um, we'll be referencing the English Standard Version if we do today, but we want to get everything on the right foot. So Dr. Kleinig, I'm just going to start this way um, because 
uh, it's a good question to ask. Why should we study this kind of weird book? What would you say? Yes, it's interesting how unpopular it is. So unpopular that when the Reader's Digest did a condensed version of the Bible, it omitted, uh, omitted everything from Leviticus. Um, and that indicates basically the status of Leviticus in the church. Yet for many people, for example, for our Jewish brothers and sisters, this is the most important book of the Bible. And for many people, new Christians in the mission fields, uh, this is the book that speaks most directly to them and helps them most of all. Well, why study this weird book? Uh, most Christians would feel that there's nothing useful here for them. It's full of lots of weird stuff like sorcery and child sacrifice, mouldy houses and unclean food, menstruation, and omission of semen from wet dreams, and lots of other weird stuff. And besides that, it's full of what's strikes us, Westerners particularly, and I emphasize that this is a Western blindness, um, it's full of ritual mumbo-jumbo, with fussy obsession, with purity, you know, clean, unclean, and lots of empty rituals. And worst of all, the thing that offends Western people most of all, but makes it most attractive to many other people in other parts of the world is all the um, uh, talk about sacrifices and bloody sacrifices. Uh, as one person put to me at one time when they heard that I was doing a commentary on Leviticus, what do you do with all that bloody business? Um, and the usual way that the book is dismissed is that the whole ceremonial law, and uh, all of you probably know that uh, the book of Le Leviticus is full of ritual legislation, legislation about worship in Israel has been abolished by Jesus. A misunderstanding, by the way, Jesus doesn't abolish it, he fulfills it. Now, um, why study the book? Well, I would maintain, um, and this is from my own experience, because I came to Leviticus late, uh, uh, didn't learn much about it in seminary, um, and it's only in the middle of my life that I began to take an interest in it. Um, uh, we should study it, I would maintain, because it shows up our blindness to uh, what we've lost in the West. We have blind spots that stop us from seeing um, not what's necessarily hidden from us, but uh, that lies in plain sight, stuff that's there but we don't see. Well, what is this blindness? What is uh, What have we in the West lost? And I maintain it's a cultural thing, uh, uh, that's uh, uh, common in Australia and in America and in Europe. Well, it's put best of all uh, by a brief comment made to me by a man, a student that I had taught uh, at seminary. Uh, I taught him Hebrew before he went to study the Old Testament in a Lutheran seminary in the USA. After he returned from that with a master's degree, I uh, met up with him in New Guinea. He comes from New Guinea. And I asked him uh, how things had gone for him in the USA and in the sem seminary. And there was a long silence as he uh, obviously chose his words very carefully. And then he said, John, for them, nothing is sacred anymore. And I, I said, why is that? Mm. Well, he said, uh, 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 
how can they serve Christ if they have no respect for his holy word? For them, nothing is sacred anymore. Now, he could have... He, I don't think uh, that just applied to that seminary or that part of the USA. It could have applied to our seminary, our church, the whole Western church. For them, nothing is sacred anymore. Um, what's the consequence of this loss of a sense of holiness, um, the holiness of God? It was brought home to me by an amazing Van Gogh the great Dutch painter uh, exhibition that was here in Adelaide. It was a, um, uh, a visual representation of his paintings. They were put on the screen and you walked around and you, as it were, entered his world, the way he saw his world. Um, and it was a world that was uh, full of darkness and light. But the most amazing part of his, uh, that was to have a sense in which the, the light shines in the darkness and of the beauty and wonder and colour of the world. For me, uh, uh, he was grasping at a vision of God's holiness. His father was a pastor, by the way. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, what, so so because we've lost a sense of holiness, we live in a disenchanted, grey world. Uh, if you like, the the world has lost its purity, its its cleanness, uh, its colour, its joy, its wonder. And the 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 dominant metaphor for our world, it's interesting, is the metaphor of pollution. Things are dirty. Uh, we live in a dirty world, a polluted world, a defiled world, where much of the colour and joy and beauty has been lost. And what people do, and sensitive people do, is to search for something sacred. Uh, they can't quite name it and don't know that it has to do with God, and that God is the only source of holiness, uh, but they look for holiness elsewhere. And that's, uh, as far as I can see, uh, uh, they look for it in three main places, in sex, and in the environment, the natural world. Uh, notice with the whole obsession with environmentalism, um, and then in, above all, in uh, recent times, in fantasy. Uh, uh, fantasy, whether it is in um, uh, books or in films or in uh, gaming, um, uh, gives them some idea or some access to uh, a, a sacred world. Well, what Leviticus does is, uh, in a very practical, way teaches us something of the holiness of God and the way he shares his holiness with us. The way his presence, his glory um, is like a light, a holy light that shines in the darkness. And that's, that's, that's if you like, the key metaphor that the Bible uses for holiness. It is light. Um, and uh, it expels or dispels the darkness. The picture that's used in the Old Testament is of God's glory. Uh, but God's glory, as you remember from the Exodus in Egypt, God's glory was hidden in a cloud. The glory cloud, uh, 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 as it were, hid God's glory and made it safe and accessible to his people. Well, uh, what does God's holiness provide for us? What have we lost? What do we gain from the holiness of God? Um, this weird stuff, which is out of this world, uh, uh, through uh, the holiness of God, 
through our sense of the holiness of God and our participation in God's holiness, we have a sense of uh, uh, heavenly beauty and glory, the sense that we are called to participate in eternal life, heavenly life, and blessing here on earth. But above all, and this for me is what is most important, a sense of heavenly wonder and heavenly joy. So why study the book of Leviticus? To just rediscover something of what we've lost in a disenchanted world, and most of all, a sense of heavenly joy already now in this life. Would it be fair to say something on the lines of to bring some color back into our lives by seeing the holiness of God? Because you talked about being kind of a gray, and we say gray in latter days, yes. that Leviticus helped us to see some color um, heavenly color, maybe something along those lines. That's a pop in my. Well, it's it's that's the perfect picture. Uh, heavenly color, um, the color that's there, but has been covered over, uh, uh, and not by being taken out of this world, but heavenly color in this world. Uh, uh, you see, we're, we're, the sense is when things are grey, you not only are blind to color but you're also blind to darkness. As soon as God's holiness is revealed, you see the light, there's colour there and the splendour, but you see also the darkness. And that's what I liked about the Van Gogh paintings and exhibition, that it was full of colour and darkness, and that those two went together. Uh, the more the light was revealed, the colour was revealed, the more the darkness was revealed. All right. So let's change um, our direction a little bit. Is This is why we should study this. And you captured that so beautifully, as you do continuously in, in your commentary as well, is what? how would you describe what kind of book Leviticus is? Because it's kind of a, a unique, it's almost like its own kind of book. What kind of book is Leviticus? Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's very important that we see it's part of a larger book, not just the larger book of the Bible, but of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that for those first five books of the Bible are a, a continuous story, a narrative that begins with creation, and then we have the story of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we have the story of captivity. In Egypt, the Exodus, the journey to the promised land. Uh, so uh, those five books end, they begin with creation and go down to Egypt. And then there's the story of the long, painful journey from Egypt to just outside the promised land. Um, Deuteronomy, the last book, is uh, before the people of Israel enter the promised land. Um, so it's part of that story, and that story doesn't culminate in coming close to the promised land, but the story of what happened at Mount Sinai. That's the focus in the middle part of Exodus to the first part of Numbers. And uh, Leviticus is, is, if you like, situated there at Mount Sinai, uh, and picks up the narrative at Mount Sinai after the uh, tabernacle had been built and consecrated by Moses and Aaron. And with the consecration of the tabernacle, God's presence um, uh, shifts from the top of Mount Sinai to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. By the way, tabernacle means God's dwelling place. And that narrative... Um, uh, is continued in two places in uh, Leviticus. Very significant one. There's the ordination of the priests and the inauguration of the divine service in Leviticus uh, 8 to 10. And then you have the second bit of narrative, and it's only a little narrative fragment, um, the inauguration and institution of the Day of Atonement. 
um, verse uh, chapter 16. So the whole book focuses on the uh, first divine service at the tabernacle, and then you have the first day of atonement at the tabernacle. So it, it, it uh, centers around that. And um, the whole of Leviticus consists of God speaking, God's words, and they all have to do with worship, the divine service. There's 26 speeches by God, on some, and all those speeches are for the people of Israel. Some are addressed to Moses, who's to uh, teach the contents to the people. Some are addressed to Moses and Aaron. Some are even just addressed to Aaron. Uh, so it has, uh, it consists of God's instruction, his teaching about holiness and worship to his people um, and the connection between holiness and worship. Um, uh, God's word institutes the divine service and God's word institutes the divine service so that the word of God the things that God said can be enacted in the divine service so that the word is enacted there and that the uh, people and the service are sanctified made holy by the word of God um, so that's the focus is on God's word the word that institutes establishes the divine service and that makes people holy in and through the service that's are uh, conducted at the tabernacle and this is it's very helpful because we can make it sound like leviticus is something of old like that's just that's something that was there Jesus fulfilled it, as you said, so clearly. And so therefore, we can kind of just skip over it. But what I'm hearing you say is this institutes what we understand to be worship, the divine service, where God's word is enacted upon us. We receive his holiness and he makes us holy. So that is why we should read it now, because God is speaking to us by his word, making showing us where holiness comes from, which comes from him, which obviously relates directly to the divine service we have now. Is that is that a fair analysis of what you're just that saying? It's a perfect summary, much better than I could do myself, Brady. <laughs> easy. Yeah, easy enough. <laughs> so it that's very helpful to make it, if I can kind of use our current terms, to say that it makes it practical for us today, not in the sense of, okay, they did that, therefore we do the same thing, but in the sense of God was giving them this word and holiness, and he continues to do that today. Any any thoughts on, on that connection and why that's important? Yes, because um, uh, uh, as we all know as Lutherans, is that uh, God, uh, Jesus, through his word, the holy word of God, institutes what we call the means of grace. Uh, that's a very modern term, and the old Lutheran terms was was the, uh, the means of sanctification or means of salvation or means of the Spirit. Word and sacrament. How does God uh, uh, establish the divine service? It's through his word. He tells us that we need to baptize. He tells us that uh, the word needs to be preached and taught. Uh, uh, as law and gospel, the word needs to be prayed and praised and confessed. Uh, he uh, institutes holy communion uh, through his word. And everything that we do in the divine service, the service of word and sacrament, is instituted by the word of God. So that through the word of God and through word and sacrament, we can share in God's holiness through our faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that is very helpful for our next question. And uh, Dr. Kleinig, we have about three minutes until our break, but I want us to start to wet our palate on this because that goes a perfect segue to the question of what is the main theme? We, we see Leviticus. Someone says, so what's the point of Leviticus? What would you say? What is the main theme? Well, the main theme of Leviticus, without any doubt, is God's holiness 
and our participation in God's holiness. Uh, it's the key to the book, everything in the book. It's the key to the theology of the book, and it's the key to the practice of worship. Not just the Old Testament. Uh, it wasn't just for the Israelites there in the desert, but then also when the temple was built and when the second temple was built. And it's the key to our understanding of worship in the new covenant. Uh, God's holiness. And the whole um, uh, theme of Leviticus of holiness and God's holiness is summed up in a single very, very uh, compact and packed sentence. God says, basically, four or five times in the book, depends on how you take it, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, this, 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 this sentence consists of two things. First of all, God um, introduces himself and he gives himself to his people by saying, I, the Lord your God, am holy. He tells them who that he is. He's the Lord, their God. He commits himself to them as their God. And he tells them that he is holy. He is the only one who's holy. He's the source of holiness. So that's the one part of this. The other part is, uh, you shall be holy. Now, um, uh, in Hebrew, the language in which God speaks this, uh, this can be taken and needs to be taken in three ways. First of all, it's a demand. God says, you shall be holy. This is my will for you. This is what I expect of you. This is what I demand of you. Notice it's not just you shall act in a holy fashion, but it's a matter of your being. You shall be holy. That's the kind of people that I want you to be. So it's a demand. But it can also be translated and needs to be translated, and that's clear from elsewhere in Leviticus, that it uh, can be a promise. God says you will be holy. Uh, it's his promise. He promises that they will be holy. And then thirdly, and this is even more amazing, it can be understood as sheer gospel, not just promise of gospel. Uh, you are holy. Uh, why uh, does God want us, his people to be holy? Because they are holy. They are to be what God has made them. They are holy. So that summarizes everything. And if you can't take away anything else from this, just think of that sentence. God says, you shall be holy, you will be holy, you are holy. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And what this... Yeah, sorry. It's time to take our break. Um, we, we, I, I don't want to stop you, but we have to take our break. We are studying Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus uh, with Dr. Kleinig, and we will be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are introducing the powerful book of holiness of Leviticus with Dr. John Kleinig. And Dr. Kleinig, I apologize for interrupting you, but you said so well, if we don't take anything else out of this, remember these words, I am the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy. You will be holy. You are holy. And I interrupted you because you were on a roll, but I wanted to just make sure we're on the same page there before we move on. Any last thoughts before we move on? 
No, I because that leads perfectly to the next point or the conclusion that Leviticus draws or God draws and teaches to his people from that. Um, since God is holy, it means that God is the only source of holiness. Uh, nobody, nothing else is holy except God. Um, uh, uh, Nobody, nothing is inherently holy except God. Hence, in Isaiah, you get the vision, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. He is the source of holiness. And that means that uh, uh, all holiness uh, comes from God. And God says again and again in Leviticus, I, the Lord your God, uh, no, I am the Lord who sanctifies you or sanctifies them. God sanctifies his holy priests. He makes them holy. And they're only holy because he makes them holy. He sanctifies his people. All the people of Israel are holy, not just the priests. Why? Because God makes them holy. But he also sanctifies the holy things, the most holy things, so that through these things uh, he can share his holiness with his people. Um, we think that we make ourselves holy, and that's the common teaching, uh, if you like, in all religions around the world, except uh, the uh, biblical uh, religion, uh, Christianity. God makes us holy. And how does God make us holy? He makes us holy through his word, which institutes the divine service and uh by his holy presence in the divine service. He, he uh, makes us holy through the uh, holy things. Mm. Now, this is something that uh, modern people find very difficult to understand, but people in the third world have no difficulty with altogether, uh, that God comes so close to us that he uses physical things to uh, convey his holiness to us so that we can participate in ho his holiness. Um, so uh, uh, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God says again and again that it's contact with these holy things that God has instituted um, that we share God's holiness. And there's a distinction that's made between the most holy things that are uh, sanctified, we would call them the means of grace, his holy word, his holy name, uh, the most holy uh, uh, food from the sacrifices, the most holy anointing oil. They are the most holy things that sanctify and that God uses to sanctify his people. And then there are the holy things that are sanctified, uh, by these most holy things. Um, so it's a distinction between the thing, the most holy things that sanctify and the holy things that are sanctified. So even though I'm holy, if you touch me, you don't become holy. Uh, but God's word is most holy. So wherever that word touches people and touches their conscience, um, they share in God's holiness, they receive God's holiness. Um, and so uh, holiness has, is God shares his holiness with us. And his holiness has two sides to it. It's a bit like light. Um, light uh, uh, is life-giving, energizes, but it also dispels the darkness. Um, uh, so God's, uh, wherever God is present, the light of his holiness reveals his glory to us, but at the same time, it reveals our impurity, our unholiness, and God's wrath is, um, that is against anything that desecrates his holiness, if you like, that uh, tries to destroy the light of his glory. Um, and the result of our sanctification, since we share in God's holiness, um, 
we can approach God safely. We have safe access to God's gracious presence in the divine service and his life-giving blessings. So um, uh, God, through his word, through his most holy word, through his most holy name, through the most holy things, shares his holiness with us. And to understand it, um, you need to understand the opposite. You know, quite you know, the best way of understanding something in practical terms is that, well, if you're going to understand what light is, you need to see it's the opposite to darkness. If you're going to understand what life is, it's the opposite to death. Uh, in the same way, we need to ask, well, what is the opposite of God's holiness? God makes this quite clear to Aaron and the priests in chapter 10, verses 10 to 12, which gives us another important key to the theology and practice of worship in the book of Leviticus. God um, says this, Then the Lord said to Aaron, notice that this is one of the few speeches that God doesn't give to Moses, but to Aaron the high priest. You and your sons, that's the fellow priests, are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and uh, the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now, uh, so uh, the job of the priests is to distinguish between holy and common unclean and clean, and to teach it in practical terms, not theoretical terms, but practically in the way uh, that in what they did at the tabernacle and in the divine service. So let's just look very briefly, and you'll have to look at it more closely, at those four terms. First of all, there is what is holy. Distinguish between the holy and the common. What's holy is what belongs to God and is used by him in worship. It's that which shares in God's holiness and conveys his holiness to us, like the tabernacle, the altar, the meat from the sacrificed animals. What's common is not what belongs to the tabernacle, but, but, but what belongs out there in the world. The common is what's permitted for human use in the order of creation. So sex is common. In itself, it's neither holy nor unclean. It's common. Uh, it's permitted uh, and it belongs to the order of creation. Or just think of the ordinary food um, uh, that we eat. Uh, it's common. Then um, you have uh, what's unclean. Now, uh, the unclean is the opposite of what's holy. Uh, okay, yeah, you have God's holiness. What's the opposite of God's holiness is what's unclean. That's what's forbidden as disorderly, unnatural, and perverted in the order of creation. Things like sickness and adultery, anything to do with the occult, the devil, if you like, it's the devil and the unclean spirits. Um, and then you have the clean. The clean is the proper natural condition of anything that's common. Anything that God's created is clean. Um, everything that God's created is good, says Paul. It's clean. Um, things like ordinary food, bread, sexual intercourse in marriage. If I can just use the metaphor of uh, uh, sex as an example. Uh, unclean sex is sex that's uh, sexual intercourse uh, uh, outside of marriage and contrary to what God has ordained and instituted. Uh, uh, but uh, sex can be either clean or unclean. Uh, if it's clean and common, uh, then it's good. Uh, it's according to what God desires. But it can be made holy by God's word. So it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, we come to what most modern people find most 
difficult about uh, uh, Leviticus is the uh, teaching on impurity as the opposite of God's holiness. If I can just summarize it briefly, impurity is the chaotic, life-denying, life-destroying power of what's evil. It, it's the result of the work of Satan and the evil spirits in the world. Um, it's incom as incompatible with God's holiness uh, as darkness is with light or uh, fire is with gasoline. If you bring gasoline into the presence of fire, that fire will burn it. So if we bring anything that is unclean, which is incompatible with God's holiness, God's holiness will eliminate it. Um, now, um, impurity um, is therefore dangerous. God says in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31 to Moses, you shall separate the Israelites from their impurity so that they do not die in their impurity when they defile my tabernacle, my dwelling place that is in their midst. If unclean things or unclean people come to God's presence, then uh, God's holiness is destructive. Um, and the result of that is death rather than life. So the book of Leviticus and the, the laws in Leviticus uh, teach the Israelites how they can have safe access to God's holiness, how, how they can come into God's presence without defiling or desecrating or polluting God's holiness and therefore coming under God's wrath rather than his grace. And you have, yeah, sorry, yes, sorry, yes. I was just going to say, Dr. Klein, as we, as we look at this, we, it is very helpful in these terms, the distinction of holy and common, unclean and clean, and the seriousness of impurity. Now, we have about, we have about 15 minutes left, so I want to make sure that we're keeping everything moving forward. But I, I remember one time, uh, one of my members who had cancer at the time, this was in Wisconsin, yeah. and she was reading through the Bible and she was reading Leviticus. And as she read it, she realized how much was required to be pure. And she said this to me. She said, I, now I see what is all needed to be pure, which once again reminds me of all that Jesus did for me on the cross. I thought that was very simplistic, but very helpful to me. So any thoughts on that comment before it's, we move it's on? It's not simplistic. It's immensely profound. Just the cost of it. And if we can um, uh, uh, go uh, uh, from that and uh, jump to that, uh, mm -hmm. what Jesus does by becoming a human being is he takes on our impurity. Okay. And it means then that he desecrates his holiness and the desecration of God's holiness is death. So as soon as Jesus touches uh, the first leper, the unclean spirit, the first corpse um, uh, comes into contact with human impurity, the result of that, the inevitable result of that is death. So he takes on our impurity to give us his holiness. He takes on our sickness to give us his health. He takes on our death to give us his life. Um, and all that to uh, purify us so that we can share in the holiness of God. So if you like, he becomes unholy, unthinkable that is, so that we can be holy. He becomes unclean so that we can be clean. So, Dr. Klein, uh, I wanted to cover some of the four terms you say that change the status before God and with them. That's a distinction that you make that we want to get to before we get to the importance of the divine service, if we could. Righto. You have, uh, Mo, uh, if you like then, from God's distinction between holy and common, unclean and clean, four states of being, and there's four uh, terms that are used 
in the Old Testament and New Testament for the change of status, the change of our state before God and with him. On the one hand, you have sacrilege or desecration. Now, what's meant by sacrilege? It's if some, if you transfer or take something holy and make it unholy, uh, uh, make it uh, un... Uh, yeah, sorry, I've lost my way. Uh, make it uh, un... Uh, it, it make it common. Um, and then you have defilement, which is to take something clean and to make it unclean. So, for example, if you touch a corpse, a normal live human body is clean, a corpse is unclean. It brings us into contact with something that's unclean. Or maybe you can you can um, uh, uh, use a, an example that's less uh, more accessible. Uh, uh, if we t uh, if we have sexual contact with the op opposite sex, uh, 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 that's clean. But if we touch something unclean, say if I have sex with an animal, or um, have forbidden sexual intercourse, then I defile myself, I become unclean. Now, uh, there are the two negative kind of changes or actions. Corresponding to that, you have the positive side. So God purifies us. Um, we become unclean through contact with something that is unclean. God purifies us by transferring us from an unclean state into a clean state. So, for example, um, menstruation made a woman unclean. Um, if a woman washed herself as God had commanded, then she became clean again. She was purified. Um, people who had sinned became unclean. Through the blood of a, uh, that atoned for their sin, people became clean again. And then most importantly, you have sanctification, which is the transfer of something common into a holy state. So uh, the offerings that the Israelites brought to God were common and clean. They couldn't be unclean. They had to be clean and common. By being presented to God and placed on the altar, they became holy. Uh, so you have those four terms. Uh, Desecration, sacrilege, defilement, pollution, purification, and sanctification. Um, what the God provides for people who, be, who desecrate his holiness and who defile and pollute uh, uh, his creation, the things that he's given them, he provides purification from impurity and sanctification of everything that is common, so it becomes holy, and the whole of people's life is holy then. Now, Dr. Kleinig, as we hear those terms, it's incredibly helpful and something that I will definitely keep reminding people of the terms and how it relates to every chapter that we go through. And it cannot help, and we have about eight nine minutes left. So I want to give the divine service, but I cannot help but think of the law gospel dynamic as you're speaking of these other terms of defilement, desecration, purification, sanctification. If you could just for a short moment, how would you speak to that? Well, how does this relate to law gospel? How would you talk about that? Right, that's very simple. Um, the law uh, identifies those things that are unclean and unholy. Mm. Uh, the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with desecration, um, uh, desecrating the three most holy things that we have. God's presence. You shall have no other God. I'm the Lord your God. Um, God commits himself to us. He gives his presence to us. You shall have no other God in my presence. He gives his presence to us. Um, it has to do with the desecration of him, his uh, worship and presence. Uh, the second commandment has to do with the desecration of his holy, most holy name. And the third commandment has to do with the desecration of his most holy name. 
And then uh, the second table of the law has to do with the things that make us unclean um, from uh, uh, dishonouring parents to coveting those things that don't belong to us. They make us unclean. So what God does through his law identifies uh, what the problems are for us spiritually. The things that desecrate us, the things that defile us, pollute us. Um, now, we don't make ourselves clean and holy by keeping God's law, but God through his law identifies those things that we need to be redeemed from, rescued from, the things that we need to receive atonement for. Uh, so that's the law side of things. The gospel has to do with the means of uh, purification and sanctification. Um, we are purified uh, through the gospel and the Holy Spirit um, by justification. We are sanctified by the word of God and the most holy things and the teaching of the gospel. So, um, uh, the teaching of law and gospel uh, has to do with uh, uh, holiness and purity. Uh, uh, God's way of dealing with uh, pollution, spiritual pollution, and what's even worse than spiritual pollution is spiritual desecration, the things that desecrate God's holiness and our holiness. Uh, very important stuff for us. So, um, and just just before I lose, don't lose track on this, uh, you can see this in the divine service. Ah, good. Uh, uh, the structure of the divine service is structured around this dynamic. Um, we begin the divine service with a recollection of our baptism and confession and absolution. Why do we begin with confession and absolution? Because we can only come into God's presence if we have a clean conscience and if we have purity of hearts uh, and souls and spirits. And that is given to us through the absolution. And then we uh, uh, come and hear God's most holy word, which pure make, makes, keeps us clean and holy and makes us holy. We receive, most importantly, the body and blood of Jesus, the blood that purifies us and makes us holy, the uh, body that makes us holy. And all that, we go out to, to receive God's blessing and we're sent out into the world then as holy people to bear God's blessing out into a... Uh, disenchanted grey world um, that knows and misunderstands, doesn't know what God's holiness is. So as we look at Leviticus, you speak specifically about the functions of the divine service. We have about five minutes max right now, and I know we could spend another hour, but what do you want to highlight about the function of the divine service as we look at Levitic Leviticus? Yes, just very quickly, and you can fill now, this in more fully, or um, uh, it'll need to be filled in more fully elsewhere. Uh, every morning, every evening, God, com uh, 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 the priests were to enact the divine service at the tabernacle. Um, and it was for the benefit of the whole congregation, whether they were present or not. Um, uh, and uh, this consisted of a combination of three offerings. A male lamb was burnt up on the altar. A grain offering, which consisted of flour and olive oil and incense, was thrown on the altar, which produced a column of smoke. And uh, wine was poured out on the altar every morning and every evening. Now, uh, the divine service was enacted in five stages, if you like, and oh, I'd throw five parts to it. First of all, the blood that was taken from the lamb was splashed against the altar in the rite of atonement. Um, and by means of the blood, then the whole service and the whole uh, congregation was purified from sin. Their sin was atoned for. They were cleansed and they were uh, 
uh, made uh, pure so that they could come into God's presence without desecrating his holiness. This was followed by the burning of incense in the holy place by the priest. Uh, he bore the names of the people of Israel into God's presence. He had the, uh, the mitre which had inscribed on it holiness to God. He came and he bore the people into God's presence and interceded for them. And then uh, after that, uh, you had the burning of the lamb and flour with its incense on the altar. And by means of the altar, God uh, and that sacrifice, uh, God met with his people. And the service then culminated in the Aaronic benediction in which God, uh, the priest who brought God blessing from God's presence, then pronounced the blessing of God and put by putting the name of God on the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favour and give you peace. Um, that's the culmination of the divine service. Or the culmination, there were two parts then. Lastly, uh, the priests on duty then ate the most holy leftovers, the most holy food, as God's guest at the tabernacle. So you have those five things, atonement, intercession, meeting with God, receiving God's blessing, and eating the most holy food to share in God's holiness. Well, just very briefly, sorry. We have about two minutes left, and so I am trying to, I'm struggling a little bit on how we want to wrap this up. But if I could ask this question, is as you look at the divine service and look at the holiness that is received, how would you summarize this book and the importance for us as we begin its study for worship today and what it was then, and to wrap all that together into a minute and a half now? Right. Well, what's the purpose of the book of Leviticus? You can see that in its climax in chapter 26. On the one hand, uh, chapter uh, 26 shows the consequence of desecrating God's holiness. Uh, God's judgment comes on the people. But uh, uh, positively speaking, in chapter 26, 1 to 13, um, uh, God says that blessings, great blessings will come on his people if they respect his holiness uh, by avoiding idolatry, uh, respecting the holy place, the holy uh, days, and respecting his holiness. And there were four kinds of blessing that they would receive. And that's what I'd like to end with here. Uh, blessing. First of all... Uh, they would receive regular rainfall with good harvests. Secondly, they would have political, social peace with uh, uh, security and victory over their enemies. Thirdly, uh, they would um, prosper in their families. Their families would grow and they would have enough food to feed their families. And then came the two greatest blessings of all, God would uh, dwell among them and he would serve them. He would serve them as God. He says, I will make, now if you keep respect my holiness, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul would not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So you have God's presence with them. And his presence with them, uh, 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 gracious presence with them. And the result of that would they would be free people. They would be free to walk with him um, here on earth uh, as his holy royal people. He says, I have broken the bars of your yoke, referring to the um, rescue from Egypt, and made you walk erect, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters in God's holy presence. So you shall be holy, God says. Why? You will be holy. Why? You are holy. Why? 
uh, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And what's the result of their holiness as the holy people of God? Is that they enjoy life in the presence of God, uh, receiving his heavenly blessings for their life here on earth. Dr. John Kleinig, Professor Emeritus at Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia, given us God's strong word by introducing the power and holiness from Leviticus. Dr. Kleinig, thank you again for being our guest. Thank you. It's a joy. Saints of our Lord, holiness is yours and it comes from the Lord. You shall be holy. You will be holy. You are holy, all on account of Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.